Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to ask you to go to jointheunion.us. Heed our words, heed the words of President Biden. Get involved in saving American democracy this fall by getting involved in your states and your communities to ensure that pro-democracy candidates win. Go to jointheunion.us and join the fight. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Andy Campbell, an expert on disinformation and American extremism and senior editor at HuffPost. His work on disinformation and extremism is regularly cited in scientific studies and scholarly papers, as well as featured on network cable news and radio. Prior to his time at HuffPost, he wrote for the Brooklyn paper and the New York Post. And just out today, Andy's new book, We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism, is available wherever fine books are sold. Today, he's coming to us from Brooklyn, New York. Andy, welcome to the show. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Reed. So before I get to the beginning, I want to read something. This is, I think, really distills American politics today and the Proud Boys in particular. Only one of these groups is committing violence on behalf of a political party and receiving explicit support in return. And as the data show, only one of these groups is plotting and carrying out violence and destruction on a massive scale. This, Andy, describes the Republican Party, the, I'm going to call it the ultra-MAGA movement because I don't want to insult someone who might have been a conservative at one point because they're not. And it speaks to the kind of thing that the Proud Boys do and largely get away with, broadly speaking. Individuals, going back to January 6th or even before, are held legally accountable. But this is an organization that's been allowed to flourish and thrive, so to speak, in a largely willing environment. Absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head. They have positioned what they do with everyday Republicans and politicians alike as protected speech. I mean, this is political violence that's being embraced as a normal thing in America. And to be sure, today, well past January 6th, you see on the street, everyday American civic life is festooned with these extremist groups like the Proud Boys and violence at everyday American civic events. Well, and going back to when I worked in the presidential advance office for George W. Bush, or even when he was still running for president, violence was not a thing at our events. The former president certainly didn't like protesters, but when those people popped up, there was a process. You never touched them, certainly. Never went anywhere near laying a hand on them, either as a political staffer or certainly as a member of the White House staff. And then watching 2015, 2016, and then through the Trump presidency, where not only did these things start to pop up during the course of the campaign, remember people being bloodied, the enemy of the people. And he's continued that even this past weekend as we're recording this. And it all seems so normal, but it's, of course, not. Absolutely. And that's why we thought the Proud Boys were concerning right off the bat, because we started covering these acts of violence at MAGA rallies, you know, in 2016, 2017. And the Proud Boys emerged as this group that not only latched on to whatever Trump and the GOP were complaining about on any given day, but they were proud of their violence and they wanted to be lionized individually for that violence. And so going forward, I mean, like you said, back in the day, and I'm talking 2016, 
you only saw this violence at MAGA rallies and BLM rallies where extremists could meet their dissenters. Today, it's everywhere. I can't imagine a political event today that you could walk up to without seeing guys in body armor and camo and guns now. Well, even churches, I'll call them MAGA churches. They have these typically large, well-armed cosplay LARPer, which I had to look up what that meant, live action role player <laughs> sort of thing where they believe themselves to be part of an army. And the GOP embraces them as such. And, you know, I think indicative of how the general American public has received this. I talked to a reporter who was attacked by a proud boy at an event just prior to January 6th in December, and he gets punched in the face by a proud boy. He looks over at a woman who was marching just sort of alongside the procession of MAGA folks. And this woman, he said she could have been his mom, points at him and goes, you deserve that. And he was like, that's when I realized that this shift had gone to the American people and not just extremists. So let's go back to the beginning. So there's this guy, Gavin McInnes. He is born in Scotland, raised in Canada, and makes his way here to the United States. He starts something that's relatively well-known, I'd say, Vice Media, after a sort of series of juvenile, sort of transgressive, just to be, you know, sort of shocking. You know, for all of the sort of ugliness he speaks, you know, he's very well coiffed. He's got this crazy handlebar mustache, the Wayfarer glasses. So he has this very, you know, look about himself. He's sort of a, you know, Roger Stone's nephew kind of look about him, I guess. So talk to us about how McKinnis comes to form the Proud Boys. In the early aughts, he kind of gets pushed out of Vice. Vice becomes more popular, and they realize that some of the content, Gavin McGinnis was the editorial voice for Vice at the time. Some of the content is uh, not what the public and advertisers want anymore, which is this horrible sort of misogynist rhetoric that comedy thrived on in the early aughts. And Gavin gets sort of pushed out of Vice and decides this horrible rhetoric that he had in Vice, one of which is a primer for date rape, right? He extols rape, even with his own wife, said it improved his marriage. Absolutely. It's disgusting. So he gets pushed out of Vice, but he decides he's going to double down on this rhetoric and make it into an entire identity. And he starts his own show, brings his audience over from Vice, which are these, you know, misogynist men, uh, young men. And he realizes that he is popular enough that these guys start showing up at his studio, start drinking beers with him. They go and have events together. He becomes this sort of localized legend. And he starts calling, you know, through the months after he started his show, he starts calling his listeners disciples and he starts leading them into this just horrible gang-like atmosphere. And then sure enough, he builds out of his audience what he described as a street gang. And he called them the Proud Boys. And, you know, the rest is history. I mean, they started right off the bat creating rule sets for themselves. And we can talk about those rules because they're really weird. But he gave them a uniform. He told them how to think, how to dress. And, you know, the rest is history. So he starts this, right? He's always had this thing. But he also has this line that he's not willing to cross. He's willing to be ugly. He's willing to promote violence, extol violence. He goes on Joe Rogan. They have these awful conversations, which they think are funny. He gets into violence. Even Rogan backs off. But it seems, Andy, that even when he could make a decision that he's going to go all the way with this, he backs off. He lives in a very nice suburb of New York City, surrounded by people that he loathes and loathe him. 
he is making plenty of money, at least at the time. And so it's like he walks right up to these things, but just can't let go of some small desire for broad respectability. Right. Well, I mean, he doesn't go all the way himself because he knows that he could get arrested. I mean, this is gang leader 101, right? He sort of disconnects himself from the violence that's out in the street there. And through that, he hasn't faced any consequences, even though his gang fomented and executed the insurrection on January 6th. He hasn't gotten a call from the FBI. I mean, this guy is great at putting distance between himself and the actual violence. You know, the Proud Boys were also involved heavily in Unite the Right. A Proud Boy was one of the architects there, and Gavin McGinnis and company saw no repercussions for that. But is it simply self-preservation and greed, or is there cowardice? So let's take, for example, Enrico Terrio, who is a subsequent leader of the Proud Boys. I don't know if he's sitting in jail at the moment, but he has been recently incarcerated on different charges. But Gavin just, I guess, is too scared to sit in a jail cell with his own gang members. Yeah. Hey, man. I mean, he just got his green card recently, and I can imagine that there was some worry there back in the day, you know, coming here from Canada and, and wondering whether he was going to get RICO charges or something like that. But yeah, I mean, this is a guy who sits in his Tony Upstate house and gives orders. He's never gotten himself down and dirty like his other Proud Boys have. And over the years, some people have rejected him for that and gotten mad at him about that. But Enrique really sort of picked up the slack in that arena after a number of Proud Boys attacked some people outside of a, a GOP event in Manhattan in 2018. Enrique takes over. Gavin says he's stepping down. We don't know if that's a true claim or not, but Enrique takes over and Enrique is not only there on the front lines, but he's pushing the Proud Boys to become more political so that they can put this political veil in front of the violence they commit. So we have Gavin McInnes, the alpha Proud Boy, and you have Enrico Terrio, Florida resident, Miami, Cuban descent, who is sort of the Omega Proud Boy. He's the end state, theoretically. But let's talk about the individual Proud Boy. If you had to sketch a guy out that joins this group, who is he? Gavin created this gang in his own image and he has them wear these Fred Perry polos and he wants them to have this slicked back look. He wants them to look good on TV. He wants them to look good for cameras. He wants them to look good when they're throwing haymakers out in the field. But in reality, the standard proud boy, you get out there and there's sort of a bunch of pot bellied beer bros and LARPing dads, like you said, out there standing around waiting for somebody to come around the corner so that they can beat them into submission. It looks like when they're marching down the street, it looks like a wandering frat party. These guys are ripping lines of coke. They are totally freaking wasted. They are partying until they can bring it to violence. So it's a fraternity, a weird one. And let me just, as an aside, Andy, there's a, I don't even call it a thread. I'm going to call it like a cable of weirdness that runs through all of this. Really strange behavior, weird rules, a lot of homoeroticism from guys who claim to be so macho, who claim to like, you know, want to make sure women know their place. But it is a very guys only Greco-Roman drinking Coke club. Absolutely. They completely reject women. A lot of this is based on the misogynist roots of this group. And again, Gavin McGinnis's own image. One of their rules, they have four ranks called the degrees. And the first degree is just saying you're a proud boy and saying the proud boy's oath. So that's easy enough to jump in. 
The second degree requires, among other things, that you get surrounded by fellow gang members and get punched by all of them while you name five breakfast cereals. It's embarrassing. And then the second is that you have to follow what Gavin McGinnis refers to as no wanks, which means except for about once a month, you can't masturbate unless you're within several feet of a woman. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous, but it's based on, you know, I, I don't know if you had this, but you know, like the high school football thing of like, you know, if you don't masturbate before the big game, you're going to like raise your testosterone. It's totally bunk science and old wives tale kind of stuff. But Gavin sort of latched onto it and said, this is going to keep us strong. It's going to keep us virile and fighting in the field. And while Proud Boys themselves wouldn't talk to me about this, I can see why they wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. While they wouldn't talk to me about it, he was making all of these rules and doing all of this live on his show. And so there are recordings of Proud Boys calling in and saying, this has changed my life. You know, it's making me better in bed and better at fighting it. So they certainly follow it. How many of these guys have a woman in bed? Voluntarily, I mean. You know, I spoke to women who had latched on to the Proud Boys, you know, over the years and sort of followed them around at their events. And the Proud Boys aren't making the first move. They're not as virile as they think they are. Well, in fact, towards the end of your book, just as an aside, you mentioned that there's a, a woman who infiltrates, to the extent a woman can, the Proud Boys environs. And that even there, it is a very segregated environment in which the Proud Boys are getting drunk, they're doing their thing, and then the women have their place. Yeah. This infiltrator wanted to utilize what she learned, even if it was just from the women who hang on to the group, and sort of send any information she could back to her activist community. Now, when she was hanging out with the Proud Boys, she said she never had to worry about getting harassed or anything because most of the guys were just too scared to talk to women, even though there was a group of women hanging out there and, and waiting for them. And apparently what these women get from this sort of weird hanging on relationship is, you know, they truly believe that the Proud Boys are the necessary defense force for America against Antifa and BLM and sort of these boogeymen uh, on the right. And so they hang on as a way to, you know, be around the guys that are going to protect them at rallies. I haven't heard of any of them getting attacked or getting defense from Proud Boys, but that's how it is. Well, before we move on to Antifa, because Antifa is, I think, almost another character in your book, the individual, the average Proud Boy, seems pretty average, also seems to be very much of this sort of lonely white guy. I'll call it epidemic. Look, I mean, anybody who's ever been a teenager knows you go through like sort of an awkward phase, but it's like these guys never grew out of it. They never learned even sort of basic social skills. That's like, okay, we played Dungeons and Dragons. We're going to keep playing Dungeons and Dragons. We're going to be video game buddies, all those things, which in and of themselves, as Judd Nelson says in The Breakfast Club, creepy and weird, but social. These guys now, they found each other because I guess, do they feel like outcasts? Yeah, I mean, certainly there's plenty of evidence that these guys are just hanging out in a like-minded group. I mean, Randy Ireland, the president of one of the NY chapters, was described to me as just this sort of dad character who just really, really wants friends. Some of them are these sort of sad dads that are just like, I don't have a community, and they really just want to hang out with other guys. And so there is an element of that. But the promise that Gavin gives them on top of having this 
like you said, fraternal organization to hang out with, you also get to channel all of your anger and rage that you're sitting there typing on your computer all day. You get to channel that in the form of fighting Antifa and in a lot of times getting away with punching people in the street. Well, and I think that's a key component of it too, which is we had another author on to discuss QAnon was being part of this existential fight, right? I'm part of the army that's protecting my people, protecting my country. For the first time, maybe in their lives, they feel like not only am I part of something, but I'm part of something that matters. And, you know, they've been supported by the GOP for so long now that they truly believe and are embraced by these elements of politics, which it was Ann Coulter, who after January 6th penned a blog titled, Thank God for the Proud Boys. And it's like this drooling, almost sexualized love letter to the Proud Boys and thanking them for saving America from these leftist aggressors, right? And so the Proud Boys, they believe that, but they've also been given reason to believe that's true. I want to say on behalf of me and the audience, thank you for making sure that none of us eat dinner tonight. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> so let's talk about a favorite battleground of the Proud Boys, and that's Portland, Oregon, a town I've been to many times. Certainly every town of any size has its issues, but Portland had become ground zero for these fights. Here you have a situation where Antifa, anti-fascist demonstrators appear not violently, at least the majority of them aren't violent. Then you have the Proud Boys on the other side of a highway, and then you have the Portland police pointed towards the anti-fascist demonstrators. And when things go, and let's, you know, it could be called the rubber bullet heard around the world or whatever, the cops go at the anti-fascists and the Proud Boys follow them in. So I want to talk about this connection between the Proud Boys, and a lot of law enforcement in these cities and towns because it's at the least sympathetic and at worst coordinated. Right. This is sort of what I bring to the table as a reporter for this book. I was a street-level extremism reporter, so I was at all of these events you know, leading up to January 6th, and time and time again, we saw local police in Portland and other places, but especially Portland, standing with like you said, the Proud Boys at their back, anti-fascists and locals at their front shooting projectile weapons into the crowds. And meanwhile, the Proud Boys are standing back laughing and, and saying, hoorah to the police. You know, part of what they've done to stop themselves from, from getting you know, arrested, from getting their permits denied when they do events, is to latch on to the police just as they have with the GOP and, and right-wing media. They have so created this image that they are patriotic, that they are pro-police, that the police largely escort them around and fight locals instead of the Proud Boys when it is the Proud Boys who are coming in and committing all this violence. And they did that for years. And in some of your reporting, at one point, the Portland Police Bureau said, if a bunch of kids want to fight on the playground after school, we're not going to get involved for a while. Right. Portland declared that if it's willing participants, that they're not going to get involved. And that was after years of violence. Portland in particular has had a really hard time thwarting this extremist threat, even though Portland is known as this sort of liberal hub. And part of that is because, you know, the police there believe that their true enemy is the anti-fascists. And, you know, while there are absolutely militant leftists that have been sort of duking it out with police in Portland over the years, it's 
the Proud Boys who have come in and said, specifically Enrique Tarrio said to the Proud Boys, we are here to waste their money and to fight. And we're going to keep coming back if they keep letting us. And they certainly have. And as you know, if you've been to Portland, it is a city of bridges, right? The Willamette River is right there. And a lot of these guys, as I recall, even from 2020, were coming over the border from Vancouver, Washington. And frankly, Andy, what I never understood was why the governor of the state of Oregon didn't park a couple of, you know, Humvees at the end of the north side of the bridge and why the mayor of Portland didn't park a bunch of police cruisers at the south end of the bridge and say, go home. You ain't coming here. Right. And this speaks to the fact that they call what they're doing protest, that they're sort of reluctantly pulled into violence. But Portland has been unable to respond to that. The governor didn't even really speak to the problem until Trump got involved and started sending agents into the field to disappear protesters in the street, you know, during the BLM protests of 2020. But the mayor has been the penultimate Proud Boy victim in, in the sense that they have called what they're doing protected speech. He goes, yeah, you're absolutely right. What you're doing is political. And I just don't know how they keep giving them permits to rally. Well, that's failure. I mean, that's what that is. I mean, I'll just call it that. I mean, mayor, as I've said, maybe on this show, like being mayor is a real job. You have real, tangible responsibilities to your citizens. And foremost among them is keeping them safe. And to me, that is both a governmental failure and a moral failure because he's just like he just didn't want to deal with it. And if you're going to be mayor and you don't want to deal with it, then don't be mayor from my perspective. But let's talk about Antifa. If I think about Antifa just off the top of my head, and I think this goes to more of your reporting on how entrenched the right wing media narrative has become. I think of a young person head to toe, clad in black, balaclava, down with government, down with everything. And I don't ever necessarily intellectually believe that, Andy, but like that's the first image that comes to my mind. Right. And those absolutely exist. And one could argue that that's protected speech. Now, the narrative that Fox News and company have been pushing over these years is they use that image of a black clad leftist holding a Molotov cocktail or a building facade on fire, somebody beaten bloody in the streets. All of these things have happened, but they use it, the same sort of footage and audio over and over and over to give Americans the sense that cities are on fire and they've been lost to Antifa. Now, that's certainly not true. But when I talk about Antifa, especially to conservatives, my parents are conservative and they ask these kinds of questions, right? Well, I saw that Antifa's bad too. I saw buildings on fire. I saw Molotov cocktails. The numbers, first of all, do not add up between the far left and the far right. The amount of property destruction, violence, assaults, murders attributed to the far right extremist elements vastly, vastly, vastly outweigh, even in just the last couple of years, vastly outweigh that on the far left. So you've got the numbers. So we, I think on June 6th of 2021, Andy, we released an ad for D-Day and we called it like Antifa to the rescue or something. And the right wing went crazy, right? Because it's like, wait, 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 wait. That's not what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a bunch of GIs storming the beaches at Omaha and Utah. That's not what this is. Yeah. You know, the idea that, you know, what they're doing is good or bad, it's what people see in the street, that black clad leftist, is the tip of the tip of the iceberg of what leftist and anti-fascist activism actually is. It was 
anti-fascist activists and locals in Charlottesville, Virginia, who put together dossiers on all the architects and led to a $25 million lawsuit. It was activists, not law enforcement, who put together dossiers on hundreds of January 6th defendants that the Justice Department has used in their cases. You know, the majority of anti-fascist work is this boring stuff that happens online. But Fox News and company would have you believe that, you know, Antifa is coming over the horizon to attack innocent conservatives in the street. And that's just not the case. So let's talk about the Proud Boys how they're organized in January 6th, and then even before January 6th on December 14th, was it the Million MAGA March? And it's one of those where they seem to have pretty detailed operational manuals. Maybe that's too grandiose a word. But the desire to be some sort of special forces commando never matches up with their ability in the street, unless, again, it's just throwing haymakers, stabbing somebody. So how does an organization, I guess, that seems so put together by not the brightest bulbs in the marquee continue its growth, even in the face of a lot of its members from the top on down are going to face real prison time for various activities? How do they continue? Because if McInnes is gone, there's no grand mastermind making sure all this stuff happens. They've been built with autonomy in mind for the local chapters. There are something like 150 chapters, big and small across the country. And these chapters, they can raise funds alone. They can do events alone. They can sell merchandise alone. And they do. The only thing that the national organization and the sort of Gavin McGinnis's and Enrique Tario have done for the group on a national level is that they've reined them in when the optics look bad. But beyond that, the machine was set up to work without them. And it has. They've shown their resiliency time and time again after they've been arrested. Their leaders have been arrested. They've gone to jail. And what happens after their leaders go to jail is, first off, the Proud Boys make hundreds of thousands of dollars based off GoFundMes and other fundraisers. And then they continue doing what they're doing. And right now, untethered by Enrique Tario and Gavin McGinnis because Enrique is in jail, they are latching on to whatever Tucker Carlson or the GOP are grieving about. And that's why you saw them over the summer at abortion rallies and any place that they're discussing trans rights, drag queen story hours. Every time you see them show up at an event and put this violent edge to it, you can bet that Fox News was doing segments on that the week prior. How do they line up with the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, those weird goons in the khaki pants and polo shirts with the hockey masks on? Like, do these all fit together? I mean, there was that footage from the January 6th committee of the leaders lurking around in a parking garage together, like something out of all the president's men. Like, how do they all work together or do they? They certainly have worked together over the years. I mean, the Oath Keepers and Three Percenters and, and other sort of self-described militias have been showing up to extremist events since 2016. They were at Unite the Right in Charlottesville, you know, standing outside of the action with their guns, presumably waiting for a justified opportunity to use those guns. But the Proud Boys, so there, there are some Proud Boys Oath Keepers and some Oath Keeper Proud Boys. Their leadership are certainly enmeshed. And the Justice Department believes that they had an outsized role and were the architects of the insurrection because Oath Keepers and Proud Boys are the only ones who face sedition charges. And Enrique Tario, the surprising thing to me about that investigation was Enrique Tario accepting this document that we didn't know about until the Justice Department released it 
accepting a document right before January 6th saying it was called 1776 returns and it had plans to storm different buildings around DC as the last stand for Trump on January 6th. And that was the first time, I believe it was over the summer, that we learned that, okay, there was a direct plan in place to do something on January 6th when after January 6th, the GOP sort of described it as this random swell of violence or that it was caused by Antifa or whatever. But now we knew this plan was in place. And of course, Terrio got picked up on his way into town because he was carrying a whole bunch of contraband and there was a warrant out for him. So he got picked up, right? He got picked up and then he was charged with conspiracy. And then after that 1776 returns document, Terrio's out of jail at this point. They slapped him and five others with seditious conspiracy charges. And so that's a very rare and big charge to face. And they, they're going to go to court, I believe, this winter. So right now you've talked about how they, you know, sometimes they've stood on the outskirts. Sometimes they've stood behind local police departments as the police departments try and disperse the anti-fascist side. Do you think that we're facing a situation in which, much like the brown shirts in the early 30s, late 20s, early 30s of Germany, just go looking for fights no matter what, and being arrested will become some sort of badge of honor as opposed to something to avoid. Well, their fourth rank degree requires that you commit a significant act of violence for the cause, the cause being Trump and the GOP's causes. And so that violence is certainly there. I think what's scary going forward is that you have this violence and these, you know, the weaponry, the fighting at these political events and everyday civic life is totally normalized and, and it's seen as a necessary and justified option against sort of the things you're mad at. And so everyday Americans are supporting this. Politicians are supporting this. So yes, absolutely. You have the brown shirt aspect and you have this shifting of what is acceptable at political events. And so we're seeing, I can't imagine going to any event right now and not seeing guys in body armor with batons and sort of using American flags as weapons and showing up with guns. It's a scary time for sure. So let's turn to the media. And you are, I don't know, I've had several guests on recently since the summer who are members of the media, but have also called out the both sidesism, for lack of a better way to put it. It's the shorthand we'll use. And we're seeing this, I think, in fact, Rick and I were doing a call earlier with somebody where the desire Andy, to explain this simply or to find the legitimate reasoning behind an event, words, a movement, is allowing the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, Trump, the Doug Mastrianos of the world to have a place in, frankly, polite society where they did not before because their views were radical, antithetical to decency and American democracy. But now here they are, and it's like, but we have to cover them. But you don't have to cover them as if it's legitimate. Mainstream media has had a heck of a time trying to describe the Proud Boys what they are in a short soundbite. And that's hard to do. But also, in the classic newsroom, you are supposed to be in the middle, in the center on every issue to a T. And to a lot of newsrooms today, that means if we're going to talk to a black activist in Charlottesville, Virginia, we got to talk to a Nazi as well because we have to show both sides. And that's what's called both sidesism. But what I've been saying, and this is the worst part of my job being finger wagger for other media, right? But the worst part of my job is having to tell mainstream media that, you know, when Enrique Tario gives me a quote, 
I know that he is lying. He tells me that he lies. He wants to lie to the press. He wants to paint them in a good light. And so I don't quote him directly. Instead, what I say is, you know, if I have to quote him, I'll say, Enrique Tarrio's a liar. Here's the quote. And he probably lied there. The classic newsroom is not set up to do that because they see that as unethical bias. But what we're dealing with is our extremists who are so good at bamboozling the media and casting what they're doing as politically legitimate that we're playing a game right now and we have to stay on top of it. Otherwise, they take the reins of your story. And it's happened time and time again. It happens with both politicians and media. You you have Proud Boys being painted in this light as like, well, they say they're only a drinking club that gets into fights from time to time or gets pulled into violence when that's just not true. And it's been borne out with so much evidence that it's ridiculous to even allow them to posit that. What do you think your colleagues think is going to happen if these people win? Do they think they're going to be okay? Listen, I mean, Trump has declared Antifa terrorists, and then he started declaring everyone he didn't like as Antifa. And so, you know, we definitely have a situation in front of us where we could have a political atmosphere that describes everyday journalists, especially ones that they consider leftist journalists, as actual enemies. And we have an atmosphere where fighting the enemies in the street is totally justified. And so, yes, I think there's a real danger. Well, I mean, how far away is it, Andy? And maybe I'm a little wound up here and my apologies is like, how far away are we from Donald Trump pointing at the press riser at the back of his event and saying, those people are the enemy of the people and the crowd jump in the bike rack to get to him? It's already happened. In between his loss and January 6th, there was something like 21 journalists attacked at Trump events, you know, by regular MAGA folks who believe that that's what they have to do for their president. It is already happening. Violence against journalists is skyrocketing. And it's a situation where even still the media is unable to describe them as they are. Is it unable or is it unwilling? Because I'm having a hard time believing it's unable. I'm unable to grow hair on my head, Andy. I'm not unwilling to. It's a little bit of both. But also the other scary thing is that there's the distance between the rhetoric and the violence is so short now. You know, back when Trump was calling the press the enemy of the people and then bombs started showing up at their houses, that took a little while. Now he declares after the FBI raid, he goes after the FBI. And within 24 hours, there was a guy trying to shoot up an FBI office. His people are ready to jump in the street. And the Proud Boys playbook is such that it shows people how to do that and get away with it. Right. So before we wrap, I want to talk a little bit about a group of people you mentioned. And these are the often unknown, mostly unsung people who track the likes of the Proud Boys online, who have figured out who their donors are, have figured out how they operate, who figured out who their leadership is. So talk to us a little bit about who those people are, what their motivation is, do they make a difference? I think I'd like to think they do. And how do we encourage folks like that to keep doing what they do? Because they're crawling around that must be the dregs of humanity on a daily basis. These are the majority of, you know, anti-fascist or just, you know, work that thwarts the extremist groups is researchers, journalists, activists, sort of all working together online, you know, sitting inside Proud Boys chat rooms creating dossiers on everybody that shows up at a Proud Boys rally or other extremist rally. You know, these are people who 
are often anonymous because they're worried about getting attacked themselves and they receive no kudos for the work they do, but they just want to stop often in their local community, the extremist threat. And I think the takeaway from that for the average everyday American is we have to change the perception of what activism against extremism is. It's not somebody holding a Molotov cocktail on the street. It's somebody saying, these guys are coming to my community. I'm going to do everything I can to get the word out and stop it before it happens. And it's happening all over the country. I would say back in the day, back in the 2016 era, it was a handful of journalists and a handful of researchers online staying in these guys' chat rooms and, and watching them move. And now it's a whole network. And so certainly that's gotten better. But this fight is difficult. It is. And let me ask one question as we close. If Trump didn't run again, does this sort of movement to these violent groups, do they scatter or do they find someone else to sort of carry the banner for? No, I think what Gavin McGinnis and company have shown is that if you want to bring violence to your political platform, you can go ahead and do that without many repercussions, right? If you do it the right way. And so this conversation has become so violent. The atmosphere has gotten so hot. If Trump leaves or if the Proud Boys change their name tomorrow, the playbook that's left behind there is if you get rabid and you get out there and you position your violence as political, you can do whatever you want. And I'm terrified going forward of what regular everyday politics look like, because I don't think it stops with Trump. And there are so many election deniers and violent people who associated with extremists who are running for office today. It is a really, really scary outlook. Well, guys, that's why as we record this, Andy, we got 50 days to election day. And as I've said before, everybody out there, make sure you're registered to vote. Make sure your friends are registered to vote. Make sure that if the League of Women Voters or another local organization needs help finding poll workers or election workers, observers, whatever it is, get out there and do your part. And remember, vote like your life depends on it because it might. All right, Andy, before we let you go, where can our listeners find you online? I am at Andy B. Campbell, A-N-D-Y, B as in boy, Campbell like the soup on Twitter. My book is out right now and you can find it wherever books are sold or on Amazon. All right. So, and gang, remember that is We Are Proud Boys, how a right-wing street gang ushered in a new era of American extremism. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Until then, Andy, thank you so much. And everyone else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May, 
and Trig V. Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.